If I've not gotten a chance to meet you yet, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really excited that you're here. I know I say that every week, but I really am excited because of what we're going to talk about today. Now, let me ask you, uh, how many of you have ever played hide-and-seek or capture the flag in the dark? Did you use a flashlight? Did you cheat and use a flashlight? You probably considered it. Um, Well, a number of years ago, I went on a wilderness trip to Algonquin Park way up in Canada. And this trip was part canoeing and part hiking. And so I remember one day, it was a particularly really, really long day. We basically did two days of travel in one day. And we're getting towards what I'm hoping is the end of the day. The sun is starting to go down. It's starting to get a little cooler out. And we're getting to the end of this lake, and it's starting to get a little harder to see. And we get to this narrow part of the lake where there's these two rocks. And my canoe is about three feet wide, and these rocks are about three and a half feet apart. And so we decide that we've got to go right through the middle of these rocks, and the current is coming at us. So we paddle as hard as we can, aiming right for the middle, and just kind of bump into one of the rocks, and the current just spits us right out. We take two or three attempts at this with the same exact result, like just kind of bumping or nicking or just tapping one of the rocks, and the current just keeps spitting us out. And it's been a long day. Like, I just want to be done, and there is no end in sight. I have no idea when we're going to stop and make camp. I don't know when this is all over. And I'm tired. I'm hungry. And I'm starting to get hangry. And I'm out of frustration. I turn around, grab my bag, start digging through my bag. I grab my headlamp, put on my headlamp, turn it on, and we're going to take another shot at this. Three, two, one, go. We paddle as hard as we can, and whoosh, we go right through. And on that day, I learned that a little light makes a big difference. And that's true whether you're playing hide-and-seek, capture the flag, or you're on a wilderness trip. A little light makes a big difference, even in life. And I know that many of you have gone through some trials. You've gone through some suffering. You've gone through some, some hardships. And this world needs a little light. And I know that many of you, you have gone through some things and, and you've experienced things that nobody has any idea about. On one side, you, you, you put up this, this picture or this portrayal of what life is for you. All the meanwhile, there are things going on behind the scenes that nobody knows about. You go through life and it looks like this, but lurking underneath the surface is all sorts of craziness and darkness and evil has happened to you. Painful things, wicked things, evil, including things like abuse. Today, that's what we're going to talk about, and we want to pull out, I want to pull the abuse out of the darkness and shine a giant spotlight on it. And so let me start by defining abuse. Leslie Vernick defines abuse this way. She says, abuse treats someone as if he or she were an object to control and use rather than a person to love and value. And so abuse often 
occurs when there is a person of influence or a person of power who uses their abilities or uses their, their influence to hurt or to harm someone. It often happens as somebody has this position of power or influence to control somebody. And it begins to wreak havoc in our lives. This is really an attack on the image of God. And I just want to say, abuse is wicked, it is evil, and God hates abuse. And I want, I want to be really clear. I want to say that right up front. God hates abuse. Did you know that one in four women, one in four women experience physical violence at the hands of an intimate partner? That's staggering. One in seven men experience violence at the hands of an intimate partner. Let me paint that picture for you a little bit. Last week, we had about 300 of you in this auditorium between two services, not including the kids and the workers in the back, 300. And so just for a moment, just imagine that we, our attendance was split completely even. We had 150 women. That would mean that 38 women have experienced physical abuse at the hands of an intimate partner. If the statistics are accurate and our attendance was split right down the middle, 150 women, 150 men, that means that 22 men have experienced physical violence at the hands of an intimate partner. That's 60 of us. That's crazy. Abuse is happening more than we know it, and we need to shine a giant spotlight on it. Did you know that one in five teen girls at the threat of a breakup experience harm or threat of harm from their boyfriend? Did you know that one in three women have been sexually assaulted? One in six men have experienced sexual abuse as a child or as an adult. One in six men have experienced sexual abuse. That's crazy. These, these individuals have been created in the image of God, that, that you have been created to image and reflect the creator and evil and wickedness has been brought to them. One in 10 high school students have experienced physical violence from a dating partner in this past year. Darkness is rampant. Evil, wickedness, the sin, the abuse, We've got to pull that out of the darkness and expose it for what it is. And I know there are many of you who have experienced that or are currently living under that kind of oppression. And I want you to see God's light for, God's heart for this. And so in order to do that, let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of the context. You see, Jesus has just kicked off his earthly ministry. He's just starting to do things, just starting to gather some disciples, and he goes to this synagogue, and they hand him a scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. He opens up that scroll and looks through it, and he chooses this passage to read. So he's just left Galilee. Now he's back in his hometown of Nazareth. Verse 16, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. 
The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. It just happens that he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And as he looks through the scroll of Isaiah, he knows exactly where he wants to go. He's kicking off his ministry. He could read anything, and he chooses this passage. Go back to verse 18. This is the heart of Jesus when it comes to abuse and evil and wickedness. He says, I've come to bring good news to the poor. I have been sent to proclaim that captives will be released. Jesus, the King of Kings, is saying, I've come to, to help the blind see. I've come to set the oppressed free. That's the heart of Jesus, that he wants to see people set free. The captives, the oppressed. And that word captive, it's this idea of being a prisoner of war. And it gives the illusion of, of Israel when they were exiles, when they were captives, when they were enslaved in Egypt. But it's also pointing back towards the spiritual and satan satanic bondage that they were under. That, they, that Jesus has come to set them free. That he was come to set you and I free. Not just from physical bondage and spiritual bondage, but in terms of abuse that's the heart of Jesus. And this word oppressed carries the idea of someone being broken into pieces. And if the statistics are true and accurate, that means that there's likely many of us in this room who have been or are currently living in abusive relationships or living with or involved in with oppressors who are wreaking havoc in our lives. And I, I, I don't really understand what it's like. I don't pretend to be an expert. And so if I sound like I'm an expert, I am by no means anywhere near an expert. But this is God's heart for abuse, that he loves and he cares for you. No matter what's happened in your life, I know this is messy, I know there's lots of different kinds of abuse. There's physical, there's verbal, there's emotional, there's economic, there's spiritual abuse. There's um, all sorts of combinations of that, psychological, domestic. And before we go any further, let me define some of these for you. You should have gotten a handout on your way in. I'm not going to unpack all of this because this gives so much detail but real quick, physical abuse would include hitting, slapping, shoving, grabbing. All of that is physical abuse. Sexual abuse is pressuring someone or attempting to pressure someone to do something sexual without their consent, even in a marriage relationship. Sexual abuse can occur. Emotional abuse is undermining someone's self-worth 
could include constant criticism or yelling or name-calling, damaging their relationship or their relationship with their kids. Emotional abuse is a broad category. It encapsulates a lot of forms of non-physical abuse. It's a way to control people and manipulate. It's difficult to identify because the bruises are not on the outside, they're on the inside. And I recognize this is walking a very fine line because there are a lot of, of good marriages in which cruel and mean and hurtful things have been said that are wrong and wicked and God hates that and it's not always abuse it's, but it's hard to identify I know there are also very bad marriages in which those things happen and I'm walking this tightrope because I, I want to acknowledge that if I call everything abuse then nothing is abuse I also want to recognize and acknowledge that if I make, if I make this as if it doesn't happen then you walk away thinking he doesn't care, he doesn't get it. And so there are two ditches to fall into, and I'm aware of that, and I'm trying to navigate that really carefully. There's also economic abuse, where someone controls the finances, or they, they don't allow that person to have access to that money, or they don't allow them to have a job to earn money, or, or allow them to go to school to do things, and so they control them financially, but there's also psychological abuse. It's, it's causing fear or intimidation, maybe by showing weapons or throwing things or physical harm to self or physical harm to a partner or to children. All of those are abuse. And if you're here and you're doing any of that, it's evil, it's wicked, and God hates it. And we have to create a safe space for all of us to talk about it and walk through that journey together. Like I said before, darkness is rampant, and I imagine in a room this size, there are many of us who have experienced it or are currently experiencing it. And so before we can move on, let's jump into Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 Listen to what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, and then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, and murder. Adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Did you catch that? Jesus is talking about our heart and not just the blood pumper. He's talking about the things that you and I think about, our affections, our choices. All of that is wrapped into what Jesus refers to as the heart. It's the core of who you and I are. And he says, the evil thoughts that you and I have, they, they overflow from what was already inside of us. The evil and sinful choices that we make, those all overflow out of what was already inside of me. And so you need to know that if you've experienced abuse 
or someone has sinned against you or hurt you or harmed you, that it was not your fault. It's not your fault. The abuse is not your fault. It wasn't what you wore. It wasn't what you drank. You weren't in the wrong place at the wrong time. It wasn't because they were abused. It wasn't because they had a bad day or they're difficult to get along with. It's not your fault. And what Jesus is saying is that all of that overflowed out of their heart. Just like it overflows out of my heart. When I think things that are not loving, when I think things that are unkind, when I do things that are prideful or sinful, it overflowed out of my heart. It's not your fault. And if you've been abused or you are being abused or you're being hurt or harmed, I really want this to sink in. And you might have to remind yourself over and over and over again because your oppressor or your abuser will try to convince you otherwise. But Jesus is very clear. All of those things overflowed out of that person's heart. And so maybe you're here, you've read through what abuse is, what abuse looks like and how it plays out in the different descriptors and you've heard me talk about it and all sorts of bells and alarms and whistles are going off. Good. Not good that you've been abusive, but good. Pay attention. Really focus today. Because you might be that person that God wants to get a hold of. Because the way you've been interacting with people has been wrong, hurtful, and abusive, and God hates it. And it must change. It has to change. Because Jesus created every single one of us as image bearers to image and reflect the creator of the universe. And you and I all have value. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to look at one more passage, and I want to give us four responses to abuse. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me give you a little bit of the background here. David is the king of Israel. David is the anointed king. First we had King Saul. Israel said, we want our own king Give us a guy like these other nations. He's big, he's tall, he's strong. He gave them what they wanted. Then he anointed David. David was this little boy out in the field, shepherd boy watching after all of the animals. And God said, that young man, he's going to be the next king of Israel. Promotes him to king. Saul has passed away, and he gives instructions for these kings. These are things you ought to do as a king, things you should not do. And one of the things that kings were supposed to do is go to war with their men. When it was time to fight, when the army was going out, when it was battle time, the kings went with them. So that's the context. Verse 1, here's what it says. In the springtime of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. You catch that? Where's David supposed to be? He's supposed to be at war. 
He's supposed to be with his men. He's supposed to be leading. He's supposed to be leading by example. He's supposed to be on the battlefield out there, shoulder to shoulder with his army, giving them instructions, leading and saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it out there, sweating and bleeding and fighting with his men. And he goes, you know what? I'm the king. When I was a boy, I, I tore up a lion and killed it. I, I destroyed a bear. I don't know if you heard about the story with the sling. I killed a giant. I'm a mighty warrior. Thousands and thousands of Philistines have died because I killed them. Like, been there, done that. I'm clocking in for PTO today. I'm not going in. And he stays home. He doesn't go out. And he, because he knows or he believes I'm the king, I'm entitled, I'm going to do whatever I want. He is a man of power and influence and ability, and he abuses that. He doesn't go out. He says, Joab, take the army, go take care of my light work, you go and do it. I'm going to stay home and watch Netflix today. I'm just going to hang out. He's not interested in serving He's interested in being served. And if you find yourself in a position of authority or power or influence, the first thing we must do is serve. David doesn't serve at all. We find him thinking, I'm entitled. I'm going to do whatever I want. He doesn't take responsibility. He does not go to war with his men. He abuses his power. It's always power over someone else. That's how abuse begins. Power over. Because he has the position, because he has the authority, because he has the influence, that's how abuse starts at the home, in the work, in church, in the office, in politics, in the schools, in athletics, Wherever you've seen it, with a politician, it's power over somebody else. In the schools, it's a teacher or a principal or a coach over somebody else. Power over. In the churches, it's a pastor. Power over somebody else. They're not serving. They're leveraging their power to control or to harm others and we've seen the stories in the news. You've read them. You've watched them. That's how it comes in. People using power and influence for themselves. But take a look at what happens next. Verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now remember, it doesn't start with the woman. We're going to find out her name in, in the next verse, but her name is Bathsheba. It doesn't start with Bathsheba. It starts with David. David is supposed to be at war. David is supposed to be with his men. David is supposed to be serving. David is supposed to be leading by example, and he's not. He's at home. And now he's walking along the rooftop. These were flat roofs in Israel, and he's watching, and he's looking, 
And all of a sudden, his eyes pop out of his head, his jaw hits the floor, his tongue rolls out, and drool begins to come out. He's foaming at the mouth. He sees a beautiful woman, and he begins to objectify her. He doesn't see a woman who's married. He doesn't see a woman whose husband is out to war fighting his battle. He doesn't see a woman who is made and created in the image of God. He sees a woman, and he objectifies her, and he begins to lust after her. Abuse. Abuse of power. Abuse of influence. And so if we find ourselves in a position of power or influence or authority, we must value others. David is dehumanizing her, and he is objectifying her. The target or the victim or the abused is always objectified, always dehumanized. It's always power over and objectification. And so if we want to really respond to abuse, we've got to begin to value others. We have to see them as people created as image bearers, people who reflect the image of Jesus, the creator of everything. But take a look at what happens next. Not only are we to serve, not only are we to value others, but look at verse three. David, the king of Israel, the mighty warrior, he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she had came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Notice Bathsheba was not doing anything wrong. Bathsheba was participating in a ceremonial part of worship. That was the bathing. Okay, junior hires, you should bathe today. That's just good hygiene. At least once a week, probably more. And so she's not doing anything wrong. She's not sinful. It's not her. It's David. David is the one who didn't go out to war. David is the one who's not serving. David is the one who's not leading. David is the one who is objectifying and dehumanizing someone. David is the one who sees her, and all he sees is somebody that he wants for him and his pleasure. And notice what he does. He sends messengers to go find out who she is. I'm sure she was aware of it. Then he sends messengers to come and get her. Now, I'm sure she had a choice. But I bet it didn't feel like a choice, did it? I mean, if you're Bathsheba, if you're this young lady, and David sends men to come get you, he probably didn't send the scrawny little junior high boys to come get her. He probably sent some strapping guys who were preparing for battle, like third string warriors. They're going out next time. Those are the guys, and it probably felt like, well, I guess I could not go and die or go. I don't know how all of this unfolded, 
But I'm pretty sure when the king sends men to come get you, you have to go. And so David, again, abuses his authority. He abuses his influence. He abuses his power, power over. And he requests her. And so he's forcing her to come to his house. And then he has an intimate relationship with her that results in pregnancy. And so if we find ourselves in a place of power, authority, or influence, we must empower others. David's not empowering anybody. And some of you men, you entered into marriage and you think your marriage or you think your spouse exists for you and your own pleasure. Women, sometimes you have entered into marriage or you have entered into that relationship and you think that marriage or your spouse exists for you. It doesn't. Are we people who are empowering others or are we people who think everybody exists to serve me? We need to empower others instead of oppressing them. David sent men to come and get her. He should have been out. And at the very least, he should have seen her and said, no, you are married to another man who is fighting in my army, doing the work that I should be out doing. And then when he finds out that she is pregnant, what does David do? He comes up with an elaborate battle plan. Okay, put Uriah, put Bathsheba's husband in the front of the group, full court press, and then all of a sudden, pull out. And then let Uriah be there. Hang him out to dry. And David essentially has Uriah murdered. Abuse over. Dehumanizing. Objectifying. He's not a person. He has no value. He's in my way. Let's take care of this. But we need to be people who value others, who serve others, who empower others. As all of that unfolds, this man named Nathan comes to David. God gave Nathan a message. <laughs> Go confront David, the king of Israel, the mighty warrior, which, by the way, David's not been making a whole lot of great choices so far, and you get to deliver him some news. And so Nathan comes to him, and he comes, and he says, okay, David, I got to tell you a story, right? There's a rich man, and there's a poor man already. Balance, imbalance of power, right? Rich man, poor man. The rich man has thousands and thousands of cattle, like as many as you could ever imagine. A ridiculous amount. The poor man has one little lamb. And he treats it like his daughter, sort of weird, has it eating at his table, right? Humanizing it. And the rich man takes the poor man's one little cute lamb, kills it, and gives it to a friend. Nathan tells that story to David, confronting him, and David is furious. He's more upset about the little lamb than he is about Bathsheba and Uriah. And he is so angry, and Nathan turns to him and he says, David, you are the man. Now, not you're the man, but David, you the guy. <laughs> you're the abuser. 
You're the oppressor. And God uses that to break David's heart. And by God's grace and his mercy, he repents. By God's grace and his mercy, David writes out Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance and turning from his sin. He owns his sin. He takes on the accountability. And so that's the last way that we ought to respond is we must accept accountability. Abusers don't accept accountability. Oppressors don't accept accountability. And we have to be a church that's willing to have hard conversations we have to be a group of people who are, who are willing to accept hard truths and accept accountability in our lives. You see, David is, is really a type of Christ. And what I mean by that is David points towards Jesus. You see, David was a shepherd, he was a warrior, and he was a king. All that pointing towards Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd the mighty warrior, and the king of kings. And so David is a type of Christ and points towards Jesus. And notice that when David is tempted, he takes somebody and he uses that person for himself. He takes his power and his authority and he, he objectifies someone, dehumanizes them, and he oppresses, abuses. But notice what Jesus does. When Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan comes at him with all these temptations, Jesus resists temptation. He doesn't serve himself. He serves others. And so I want you to know, if you've lived through abuse or you are currently living through abuse, your hope can't be in your abuser changing. I'm praying I'm hoping that they will change, that they will repent, but our hope has to be anchored into Jesus and his heart for you, his heart for the abused, his heart for the oppressed, is he wants you to be set free. And so what do we do moving forward? If you've been abused, I want you to know that speaking is redemptive, that we've got to get your story out into the light. Tell someone Tell a friend, tell somebody who serves here, tell one of the pastors, tell me, tell someone speaking is redemptive. Shine a light on it. Abuse requires silence to grow and thrive. And as one Holocaust survivor famously said, I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Speaking is redemptive. So let's pull it out of the darkness, shine a light, because light changes everything. That's your first step. And so I want you to know that this is a safe place to our safe people to talk to. And I recognize that may be very difficult. And so if someone comes to you and they begin to share their story, they may speak in riddles, they might tell you like half stories, they might ask you questions, you're like, I'm not sure why you're asking me this. 
Just ask more questions. Just ask follow-up questions. Help them. Pull that story out of them. Here's what I mean. They might come to you. We'll pick on the guys. And maybe it's a, it's a wife, and she might ask you, does your husband yell at you? And you might be tempted to think, well, yeah, yeah, he has yelled at me. In that particular instance, that will not be helpful. Ask them to tell you more. Well, what do you mean by that? Why do you ask that question? Tell me what you mean. Help me understand what's happening, right? Pull that story out because if all of a sudden, if I say, oh, yeah, of course my husband yells at me or of course my, my wife yells at me, now I've just normalized their situation not even knowing it. So ask good questions, follow up. But I really want to be clear. When it comes to abuse in the marriage, there can be a lot of confusion. A woman does not stop affirming her husband's leadership when she reaches out for help. A woman does not stop affirming her husband's leadership when she reaches out to the authorities or people within the church. Nobody should be able to say, I can't go to you for help, or I can't come to the church for help, or I can't go to the authorities for help. In fact, the best way for a woman to be a submissive wife is to be submissive to God. And know this, God put the authorities, the police, and the local government in place for your protection and for your help. And so you can be a godly person and still go to the authorities. In fact, you ought to go to the authorities because God put that protection there for you, for us. He cares for people. And so when women or men are experiencing abuse, they should reach out to the authorities. When any of us know about somebody who's experiencing abuse, we should go, on to, go to the authorities on their behalf. We have to pull abuse out of the darkness. The Bible is crystal clear. We need to protect people who are being harmed and hurt and abused and oppressed. As Christians, myself included, I put a high value on marriage and forgiveness and unity and that sometimes leaves people feeling guilty for calling abuse out or going and asking for help or leaving a dangerous situation, but you should leave a dangerous situation. I want to affirm all those values. I hold them very close to my heart, but the best way to honor somebody who hurts you or harms you or is violent is to remove that situation from them. Get out of there. Self-protection is not selfish. It might be the most loving thing you can do. So if someone comes to you, help them pull their story out because speaking is redemptive. Number two, if you've been abused, I want to encourage you to connect with God. Focus on his goodness, his justice, his mercy. Here's some verses that would help you do that. Or if you have a friend or a loved one who's experienced abuse or is experiencing abuse, these verses could be helpful. There's no quick fix to this. There's no, hey, take 1 John 3, 16 and call me in the morning. Boom, you'll be done. This is going to be a journey. And for many, it will be a long journey of healing. We're just scratching the tip of an, an enormous iceberg here. Next, I would say, read and meditate on Psalm 27. 
That's an amazing passage that would help you out. And I would say write it out, make it your own, and then write it out and rewrite it out and write it out and rewrite it out over and over and over again until your heart just captures everything in that psalm. Rework it again and again until it captures the cries of your heart. Next, if you're the abuser or you know someone who is abusive, I would share this course with them. It's a men of peace course. I know I've been picking on men a lot. I acknowledge that women are also abusive. It does cost money. It's a self-paced course, but it's worth the money. It's worth the time. It's worth the investment. Get help. If you are abusive, have been abusive, wrestling with that, before you leave, I want you to know your abuser may speak words of condemnation and shame, but those are not the words of Jesus. Jesus stands as your righteous advocate who loves you and cares for you. He speaks words of mercy and forgiveness. Your abuser may willingly sacrifice you, but Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for you. Anchor your hope to Jesus. Anchor your hope in Christ. Your abuser may prey on and take advantage of you in areas of weakness, but Jesus moves towards you when you are weak. He shows himself strong when you and I are weak. I know this is a big topic, and there are a lot of things we didn't cover today. I recognize that. But I want you to know, this is a place where we are going to shine the light on the darkness. So let's be people who serve and value others and not objectify. Let me pray with you. God, you are amazing. I know this may have stirred up some emotions or memories in folks. And I know they may be wrestling with things that have happened in their lives, but you are the one that gives us hope. God, would you help those who are living in those destructive environments to be set free? Would you give them the courage and boldness to, to speak about it, to, to share something about it? That would be redemptive. That would be the, the first step in their healing process. And if there's individuals in this room who are being abusive, that you would call them out. Your spirit would convict them. You would give them a godly sorrow of how they've been treating others and oppressing them. And you would help to change them. God, let us be people who are going to pull the darkness out and shine a giant spotlight on it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It's a loaded one, huh?